So today, um, thank you so much for participating in Writer News' podcast. This is Miriam Rachel Newman, and I have with me Dr. Anton Troyer, Professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State, author and editor of Oshkabewis, is that correct? Yes. Okay, Nate, uh, which is also known as Native Journal and the only academic journal of the Ojibwe language, and the author of 19 books. We have uh, Meyer Weinschel, PhD candidate at University of Minnesota in the Department of German, Nordic, Slavic, and Dutch. His dissertation examines how German language poetry and Yiddish translation affected Jewish culture. Meyer is also actively involved in Yiddish language pedagogy. And we have author Marcy Rendon, playwright, poet, and novelist. Marcy has published four nonfiction children's books and an award-winning novel, Murder on the Red River. Marcy is a community, community arts activist who su supports other Native artists, writers, and creators to pursue their art. Marcy is an enrolled member of the White Earth and the Shinabi Nation. And Marcy has studied Ojibwe as an adult. So um, Meyer and Antone, could you say a few words about what an endangered language is? whoever would like to go first. Sure, you know, right now there are a little bit less than 7,000 languages spoken on planet Earth. About 2,500 of those languages are extremely endangered with a tiny handful of speakers who are all elders uh, who still speak those languages. Even though that sounds like a lot of languages, only about 100 or so are actively and widely taught at colleges and universities. And we are at a time now where we're seeing the proliferation of just a handful of major world languages and a lot of stress placed on other language communities. These include a lot of indigenous languages around the world, um, and, and many others too, even languages that are official languages for a country. You know, Switzerland has four official languages and Rumage, one of their official languages is extremely endangered, even though it's supported by the government. Uh, and there are a lot of things that are causing the pressure on world languages. Uh, and <laughs> there are at the same time, a lot of really exciting things being done to try to stabilize and revitalize them. Okay, Meyer, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, to pick up on um, what Anton also said about um, we're, we're in an age where certain languages, particularly these, these sort of global, thanks to global trends, certain languages are being um, abandoned um, for, other, um, for others. And it's um, putting a lot of stress on um, how we... Um, Carry, carry languages and cultures forward to new generations. Um, that's um, really a huge challenge for many um, teachers and activists currently. Um, yeah, I mean, Anton said it really, really well. Um, there's not much more I can add. Um, I would also say, of course, that yeah, I mean, um, there are many factors, of course, that, that um, designate a language as endangered. And of course, what we'll probably get to later is how, um, whether or not languages are, are um, being transferred to, to newer and younger generations. The only way for, for languages to um, 
really survive, in my opinion, and one of the main ways is that um, children speak, speak the language, and that's really a major factor in why many languages are becoming endangered today. So. Okay, thanks. Um, so I think there's consensus that Ojibwe is an endangered language, but there's not such consensus about Yiddish. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree with that, Meyer? Um, I would say Yiddish, um, Yiddish has the luck, fortune, etc. cetera, um, that there are, I mean, more than enough speakers currently of the language, first speakers of the language and young speakers of the language, um, numbering in the several hundreds of thousands. Um, but the distinction there is that um, what is spoken today and what is part of a Yiddish culture is not what the Yiddish speakers of 100 years ago look like. Um, and those communities from 100 years ago, those are the speakers um, who have largely died out, um, whose children did not learn the language or grandchildren did not learn the language. And um, that culture, I would say, is at risk of, um, of, of dying. Um, pretty quickly, but yeah, it's it's a complicated thing with Yiddish because of of the statistical numbers that it that it still has, which are wonderful, but it doesn't match um, in the same way what what the realities were um, before the Nazi um, genocide um, seventy five years ago. So, so um, that brings me to my next question. So, um, for both Ojibwe and Yiddish, I think we can clearly point to genocide as the primary cause of the language's decline. Um, the genocide here in the U.S. against indigenous peoples and the Nazi Holocaust for Yiddish. But genocide isn't the only explanation. As Meyer just said, there are hundreds and thousands of Yiddish speakers, for example. But can you each speak to um, what other factors are involved other than um, genocide? Oh, there are many. Um, the biggest predictor of what the everyday language of a human being will be is actually not the language of their parents or grandparents. It's the language of their peers. And for many languages, even some that have some strength of speakers, maybe like Yiddish, um, and even Ojibwe, there are a number of Ojibwe communities in Canada where there's 100% fluency in the language. But even in places like that, as soon as electricity comes into that community, there's a satellite dish and kids are watching SpongeBob in English and start speaking to each other in English. And this is absent uh, genocide, absent now the residential boarding schools where there was a cultural genocide that the Canadian government has acknowledged actively um, orchestrating that this is something that originates out of social pressure. And, you know, a lot of human populations are pretty mobile, including indigenous populations in places like the US and Canada. They leave their communities and they go to urban areas looking for jobs or because they marry someone. And once they're out of that language community, then it's very easy to start operating in one of the other major languages that dominate media. Um, English, Spanish, mm -hmm. Chinese, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Meyer, would, um, can you speak to the other factors um, involved in Yiddish? Yeah, um, I have two, two sort of main arenas for um, 
the shift um, in speakers in the United States, for example, happened a little earlier with um, the fact that the U.S. Um, restricted any further immigration from Eastern Europe. Um, and so that cut off a major chain of um, people coming to the United States um, to speak, I mean, and who spoke Yiddish. Um, another is acculturation and assimilation in the United States. But in Europe, um, besides um, genocide, there was um, state repression um, in the Soviet Union. Um, the surviving speakers um, after the war, after World War II, were largely confined to the Soviet Union. Um, where the language was more or less uh, repressed by the state. Um, schools were closed and shut down. Um, uh, Yiddish publications of any kind, the Yiddish press, um, were um, outlawed. And um, certainly younger, younger speakers were forced to um, learn Russian or Ukrainian. Um, and, um, you know, even with, at, by the, you know, the time the Soviet Union fell, um, that was already, you know, two or three generations, um, you know, into this, into this culture of repression. So, um, yeah, people, people had no, no memory of, of what, what Yiddish culture looked like before then. So that was, that's a challenge. Um, yeah. So speaking of the Soviet Union, um, can you just talk a little bit about Birobidzhan and if that had any meaningful impact on, like, what, could you just say what it is and, um, if it had any meaningful impact on the promulgation of Yiddish? Um, it was initially an autonomous region in the Soviet Far East um, that was meant to provide Yiddish speakers with um, a territory of their own. However, um, it, it failed. I mean, it was not that successful at any point, but um, with whatever successes it had um, with Stalinist repression in the 30s and then later in the 50s again, um, most of, of the, the sort of mainstream efforts to promote Yiddish in the region died. Of course, the, the Beovijan still exists today. Um, Yiddish is still technically an official language of this region. Um, and there are um, small publications and, and school programs for Yiddish, um, but not, um, it's not a fully immersive environment. So um, the challenge again is right, um, as Anton, um, Anton was pointing out earlier, that um, you know, if, if students are having to choose between Yiddish and Russian, they're going to go with Russian when the, all the television they see is in Russian, the films they see are in Russian, etc. So, mm -hmm. yeah, a language, for a language to live, it, it needs an immersive <coughs> environment and it needs support. So for a big language like English, there's lots of support because private industry is busy making movies and things like that. And it is possible for a language, even an endangered language, um, to really thrive with some sort of designated affinity space, support space, immersion space. And those things require, you know, financial support and enough speakers to really rally around them. And that does happen. It's happening with Maori. It's happening with, you know, Hawaiian. It's happening in different places. But for many languages, they die, you know, wither on the vine from lack of support because these spaces take intentional action and money. And, you know, in many countries and in many communities, sometimes those things are very hard to come by. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so Marcy, I know that you are a student of Ojibwe as an adult. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of Ojibwe uh, language in your childhood, um, if any, and what motivated you to learn as an adult? So when I was a child at home, my parents spoke Ojibwe. I'm pretty sure that my brother and sister who were older than me, the, um, probably their first language was Ojibwe um, or enough so that they could communicate. But by the time I came along, I think it's like Anton said, they were speaking English and talking My, you know, my brother and sister were talking English to me. Um, and so I didn't learn the language as a, as a small child. And then when I went to school, and I didn't remember this until I was taking um, Ojibwe language from Brandon Fairbanks. And he was saying something in class about in order to make this certain sound, you have to put your tongue in this certain place in your, in your mouth. And I got this flashback of in first grade being sent to speech therapy to get rid of the nasal sound in my voice. So like when I would say onion or um, wagon, I would nasalize it. And so I was sent to speech therapy to get rid of that and taught to put my tongue in a different place in my mouth. Um, and my mother was a boarding school survivor. Um, anyways, there's whole bunches of reasons. But I, I have been trying to learn the language since the 1970s. And I fail, I fail, I fail. I mean, there are, you know, I, I feel like maybe I'm not even a year old in terms of speaking the language. It's just, and it's a difficult language to learn anyways. And I live in the city. I'm not surrounded by it. Um, most recently, we're taking class, myself, my granddaughter, who's in her early 20s, my granddaughter, who's 17, and then the grandbaby, who's seven months. We're going to Mimigwesi's classes at the Indian Center. And my two granddaughters are learning way faster than I'm learning. They're already in like two classes above and I'm still in the beginner class. So um, you had mentioned that um, you're not surrounded in daily life I, by people that are um, speaking Ojibwe. Um, are there other factors that are involved in um, the way that you've been having some challenges learning? Oh, I just, I just blame myself, my inability to learn a language, um, which isn't the answer to your question. I think we all feel bad that we don't know the language. And so that feeling bad also makes it hard to learn and hard to, and when you don't have somebody to speak it with all the time, and it's, it's a different language than the English language. It's about relationships. It's a verb. It's a verb-based language. Um, there are different beginning. The beginnings or the endings of a word can change the word. Um, and so there's all of these different things to learn, which I think goes back to what Anton's saying about you really need to be immersed in it in order to completely grasp it. Um, I do want to add one thing that I do have a 10-minute play got translated into Ojibwe. I went to a, a, a language symposium at Ann Arbor, Michigan, 
And there were people from a Canadian reserve who came down as language speakers and they translated my play into Ojibwe. And so it's, it's an opportunity to hear the language in a non-classroom setting, which I think is really important. And you learn how people talk back and forth to each other instead of just kind of, here's a word, here's a sentence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was going to ask about your kids and your grandkids, but you already spoke about that. Okay. Um, so Anton, um, I recently read uh, The Language Warriors Manifesto, and I know Mayor uh, read it as well. So one thing that really struck me is the emphasis that you place on teaching children, which is clearly essential. And it made me realize that um, as somebody who's trying to help revitalize Yiddish, my goals have been very small. So it was kind of like... Yeah, like I don't even try. I haven't tried to teach kids at all other than some efforts at um, where I used to go to synagogue. But it was always a struggle of, well, we can't teach Yiddish because you're taking away from Hebrew. And we can't take away from Hebrew because somehow like that's going to be like hurting the state of Israel, which is just a whole other question. But um, so it's kind of a... I think a defeatist attitude that I have felt um, because of the kind of the, the binary that's set up as a conflict with Hebrew. So there's, there's not enough time. We hardly have enough time for Hebrew. How are we going to add Yiddish? So um, Meyer, what are your thoughts about an immersion model for kids in the U.S. Um, and or about teaching Yiddish in, um, in a day school? Um, I, I think it's... I think it's vital. I know that there are people trying to create Yiddish immersion, again, outside of Orthodox communities, creating immersion environments, um, starting in kindergarten and then expanding them. Um, it, mostly in New York City. But um, yeah, I think, I think it's vital. There are um, mitigating factors in that too are um, people have, people have started their own kind of circles of speakers, you know, wherever places they live, whether it's Baltimore or um, Texas, um, families get together and, and basically devote a weekend or whatever to only speaking in Yiddish with each other um, with their children. I think that's really um, the key there. Um, yeah, that's what I can say to that. Do you think we can ever get past the, you're taking away from Hebrew? mentality oh. in the in the day schools for example um i don't i don't i i don't i well i shouldn't say i don't think so i think that's not a very hopeful way of putting it but i think um it speaks to bigger factors that i know anton brings up in his book as well that there's um you're you're fighting a, people are always fighting a lot of attitudes internalized attitudes about languages and about um their their use their value um and I think that it's part of part of the work that we do is to fight fight back against that, but then also realize that there's so much energy going into fighting those stereotypes that it's it's in, in my opinion not always the most um, rewarding or constructive part of this. Anyway, it's you know coming up with with solutions to ignore the skeptics and support the people who do want to learn this language. So. I think maybe that's that's what I would say is that mm -hmm. even if it's not something to get around, I think you know in these particular environments, I think we can still find ways to promote the language and 
with the people who are willing to learn it and able to learn it, um, it's, it's challenging um, mm -hmm. due to all these factors. Yeah, from where I sit, if Yiddish speakers and Hebrew speakers are fighting over whether the kids are going to be taught Hebrew or Yiddish, the only people who win are the English speakers. <laughs> True. True. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's very much, I guess I've myself been kind of caught up in, in like fighting that, but yeah, I have to find a way to kind of get past that and be more productive. But um, so Maya and I both, we both teach Yiddish in the community and uh, we often talk about how Yiddish is both fetishized in a nostalgic manner um, and despised as not being a real language. So on the one hand, it's like, oh, wasn't it great in the shtetl when everybody spoke Yiddish? And like, in fact, the shtetl was horrible. Like, you know, mm. my father went through it. It's like nothing that we want to promulgate. Um, but Yiddish is thought of as like, that was then. Um, and it's kind of, in a, kind of painted in a romantic glow mm. in some ways. And then it's all called like, um, well, it's not a real language. It's, it's German with no grammar, like among other things. That's what people say about it. Um, so Anton, do you encounter that with um, Ojibwe at all? Um, people saying it's not a real language, and if so, how do you address it? Yes, there are multiple kinds of resistance in multiple different ways. It's, it's not so much people doubting that Ojibwe is a real language, so much as people who doubt the value of this language as opposed to, you know, English. Um, and that's because people are first focusing on things of financial value, marketable skills that are going to get you a job and things like that. And they see it as something cute or quaint or a pretty bird singing in the forest rather than something that is much more powerful and meaningful. And, you know, my response to that is, first of all, you know, Ojibwe language is marketable. Like all the fluent speakers I know have em gainful employment if they want it. There are jobs and uh, that's a false assumption. And second of all, why does everything have to have financial value to be valued? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, human beings have been pretty hard on each other throughout history. And there is a certain kind of violence that is different from the clunking somebody over the head and taking their bologna sandwich, so to speak, the kind that is a colonial kind of violence that seeks to supplant one culture, language, and way of doing things with a, another. And that has been an especially damaging form of violence. Why would we assume, and we're all riddled with the effects of this colonial kind of violence, mm -hmm. you know, White people from Northern Europe, thoroughly Aryan, are plagued with the damage that they've been doing to each other by operating this kind of violence, which is dehumanizing to everybody. And we all need healing. Why would we assume that the colonial way of solving problems is going to solve all the problems created by colonialism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of the ideas, ways of thinking, worldviews that are likely to solve the problems we have in this world are going to come from cultures and languages that have more than vestigial remnants of different ways of thinking about things, looking at the world and solving problems. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Um, so, um, what's the greatest challenge you face as a language warrior, Anton? Oh, well, you know, the challenges are multifold and all the battles matter. You know, even listening to you say, I'm thinking too small. Like, I, I don't think there's any battle too small. Like, every resource we build is vital. Every human we teach is a win, you know. Every piece of political advocacy and awareness and understanding and every bridge built, you know, even with other language warriors from other language communities, that they're all important efforts in the war to keep these languages alive and help them thrive. So um, I have at times in my personal and professional journey, um, you know, run into big challenges as an individual when life would happen and would have me distracted from my mission and greatest passions. And, you know, sometimes I, you know, there would be a problem just finding a true language community um, where finding a few resources would be an issue and finding fluent speakers that I could connect with on a regular basis was a challenge. And it's not just people who live in an urban area you know, people growing up on a native reservation that has a few hundred speakers will have trouble connecting with people, trouble connecting with their own grandparents. Um, and so, you know, there are all kinds of challenges, but there are ways to address them. And, you know, even right now we're developing Rosetta Stone for Ojibwe. And this is something that overcomes space and time and can reach people anywhere on the planet. And I initially was advocating for this, telling they only have 25 speakers left in Mille Lacs. And I said, how about set up your fluent speakers now to teach people for hundreds of years to come? Let's develop this resource. Uh, and, you know, I've had other challenges at the structural and kind of institutional level. Um, you know, getting funding, getting support, getting enough bodies. We have capacity issues, having enough qualified speakers to populate positions in schools so that a program or school can really thrive. And they're all really important battles. I would say none of them really could be abandoned. Not that any one person has to take them all. I, I found a lot of inspiration with the Hawaiians and wrote about them and spent a lot of time there over the years um, because they've had so much success. At the low point, down to a thousand speakers left on planet Earth, Today there are 22 speakers you can, or 22,000 speakers, and you can go um, to school K-12, all in Hawaiian medium, and get a college degree, all Hawaiian medium, all your classes taught in Hawaiian, um, and go back and teach at the schools, and they have a full pipeline. And they built that when things looked pretty, pretty gloomy. And, uh, and, and they've been very strategic. You know, some people said, I'll just focus on the politics, getting our language, you know, declared as an official language, fighting for the change of every street name and road sign and things like that. And that was their part of the lift. And others were working on the early childhood program and others were working on building university things. And some others were working on lexical expansion so they could talk about Xbox and, you know, zoom meetings and podcasts in hawaiian and you know all of these were different important battles and different people took them on mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, Hawaiian, when I was reading about it in your book, the Hawaiian story about Hawaii was really very inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, Maya, what about you? What do you think um, some of the, your greatest challenges are as a language warrior? Um, um, I, I'm not to go back to, to the challenge you said earlier about Yiddish versus Hebrew, that's a big one. Um, another is, um, yeah, getting people to shed um, certain attitudes they've they've taken on um, about Yiddish. Yiddish, some, Yiddish as a as a minoritized language, being um, ironically the harbor of nationalism of of imperialism. That's um, kind of a, a sad irony and challenge that I face a lot with speakers. Um, Can you say um, a little bit more about that? Um, people people will say things like. Well, not everyone has a has a Yiddish has Yiddish speaking ancestry. Um, not everyone comes from Eastern Europe, and I always try to point out that um, again, Yiddish is not meant to be taught, and certainly at the state that it's in today, at the expense of other um, Jewish languages. You know, languages that were historically spoken in parts of the Mediterranean or in the Middle East, languages that are um, again even more severely endangered today. But um, it's teaching Yiddish isn't being done at the expense of those languages and it shouldn't be either. So um, a lot of people have those assumptions. Um, let's see. Um, geographically, I think that's another challenge. Um, there are some really great efforts being made in parts of Europe in again, in Israel, Palestine, in North America, and I mean elsewhere in North America, to promote the Yiddish language, and other parts of the country, it's it's more of a challenge. Like here in, in Minnesota, um, there are fewer speakers. Um, institutionally, things just work very differently. Um, there's a lot of paternalism in Jewish organizations and in educational institutions that prevent new initiatives from from really taking hold. Um, but yeah, um, I, I don't know. In, in spite of those challenges, I think people are still learning the language. It's it's not um, it's not a hindrance in, in every you know. There's not a hindrance in every sort of facet of, of this this problem. So anyway, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so Marcy, you're a cultural warrior. Um, what are what are some of would you would you agree? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think of you as uh, somebody who uh, pretty successfully is spreading your culture and helping support okay. promoting other people yeah. who are working yes. on that culture. Yes. Um, so what are some of the uh, ways that you could um, branch that out? Like what kind of support would be uh, productive for you? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about the difficulties of learning the language or what. No, we already talked about that. <laughs> and my, my very first thought was if I could find somebody else who could drive the granddaughters to language class when I'm out of town on trips like this, okay. um, that would help. Um, I mean, some very simple, basic things like that. Um, you know, I wrote, when I wrote that 10 minute play, it's about an intergenerational story of a grandmother, a mother, and a young daughter. And then when I went to the symposium and they translated it into Ojibwe, 
I mean, one of the reasons why the speakers there wanted to translate it, translate it is because they wanted people to be able to hear people having a conversation. And I think that that's, um, that is important because a lot of times when we go to class, we're just, you know, like you learn this phrase or you learn this word or you learn this VAI or you, you know, it's like, oh, your head just swims. Um, and if there's a fun way to hear the language, it just makes it easier. Mm -hmm. I know that when we've gone to the language camp, up at Fond du Lac and they have talent night and you know there was a woman from I forget where she was from but she was singing Adele songs in Ojibwe and even mm. though the young people there didn't know the language they knew the song enough that once she got going they joined in and started singing um, so I think if there could be more at a community you know I, I try to write things for theater I try to you know, use bits of the language in my writings. Anytime that I'm writing something, I try to always have one or two words in there. Um, and there's something about how, you know, when you were talking about, you know, how do you say Xbox in Ojibwe? How do you say Pampers in Ojibwe? I know that there's been a lot of work put into, you know, like creating new dictionaries. And, but I also know that as a woman, some of those things that I've seen in those dictionaries aren't, from the female side of life, like how do you mm. say Pampers? How do you say Tampax? How do you say um, different things that are relevant to us and you know and in, in language today? Um, yeah, so more fun ways to do it. More, yeah, I don't know. Mm. When I'm thinking again about theater and writing and songs, and the kids have. Um, a lot of different tapes and podcasts. I know we have a podcast that we can turn on when we're in the car to hear the language. Am I answering your question? Great. Yeah, definitely. You could sign me up to drive the kids, by the way. <laughs> okay, <I'll remember laughs> when you're not that. home, I'll do it. Um, so for somebody who is considering learning Yiddish or Ojibwe, um, Anton and Maya, what would you say... Uh, would be a first step that they could take? You know, to me, the most important thing to do is to take a minute and fall in love with your language. And you'll really be motivated to figure out the rest of it. It's like that when we bring children into the world, too, as parents. If you fall in love with that kid, you will be highly motivated to deal with the puke and the fevers and everything else that is sure to come your way. If you never fall in love with it, you might wish it well, like you would wish somebody, some stranger child to have a good life. Mm -hmm. But if you fall in love with it, you'll jump in front of a train, you'll do whatever it takes. And so I have found for myself in my journey, when I really engage my language and culture, I fell in love and I was all in and I was thoroughly motivated to do what it took. And I still believe fundamentally that's the biggest and first step. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just kind of well-wishing and curiosity and there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong. Like I encourage people to be curious, um, but to really get it 
you know, it takes more. And once somebody's got that, then you got to start turning over some stones and seeing what there is. And it really depends on where you're at. I'm hopeful as we've now, you know, even just this year, we signed a, a series of historic agreements with the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. Um, they're publishing monolingual Ojibwe books through the Minnesota Historical Society Press. Mm -hmm. That's a new development. Um, usually, the you know presses have been worried about you know sale numbers in an English language speaking world, and if they're not going to sell five thousand copies, they often don't want to sell you know produce a yeah. book. But they've come to realize that you know there is a market for Ojibwe language material that they just didn't fully realize and have been building relationships with folks. Uh, you know, with Mille Lacs also, we're doing Rosetta Stone. There's a lot of material that's being developed and it's fantastic to see. There are, I would classify the Ojibwe language revitalization efforts as emerging and there are a lot of ways for people to get involved. So for their own individual learning, there are language tables, language camps for the committed. There is an Ojibwe, adult Ojibwe immersion opportunity on the Fond du Lac Reservation um, where you, you know, once you're in, you spend three weeks in an intensive immersion learning environment and then one weekend a month um, for the rest of the year. Pretty much everybody I know coming out of that program can rock, roll, spin a pipe, pray with the chiefs. You know. <laughs> um, it's, it's going great for them. And they're landing jobs and working at the immersion schools and things like that. So um, I, it depends on how much time somebody can arrange, depending on their life situation, where they're at, what's going on. Uh, but there are more tools and resources out there than a lot of people realize. Even on my website, I've got a little clearinghouse list of resources on free language materials, talking flashcard programs, you know, different things like that. They're easy to access, don't cost any money. A lot of people in the Ojibwe world, you know, are sitting at Maslow's hierarchy of needs tier one, worrying about food, clothing, and shelter. And there's a financial barrier to getting themselves out and about in different language learning opportunities. But um, even with those kind of barriers, there's still a lot of things at people's disposal that I certainly encourage them to get engaged with. Mm -hmm. I think in the Twin Cities, on any given day, you can find a free Ojibwe language class, which is, which is huge, which is huge. They have that resource. So what are some of the um, spaces that offer that? Um, the Indian Center, the U, the White Earth Tribal Office, um, Those are, those are the ones that I think mm -hmm. of right off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. And Meyer, um, for somebody who's considering learning Yiddish, what do you think some of the uh, first steps they can take would be? Um, <clears throat> yeah, to, to echo what Anton said too, um, finding things that you, you're interested in um, is really key. Um, speaking, just simply speaking a language isn't enough. You need to, to, to be interested in, 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 and know why you want to learn this. Um, also, at a very basic level, um, um, people need to maybe start, I mean, they have to be realistic as well. They have to, for example, learn a new alphabet. Um, that will take time. Um, but, yeah, similarly, um, 
yeah, f finding finding what it is you're interested in. If you're interested in um, something like literature, but if you're interested in um, cooking, if you're interested in, um, I mean, really anything, um, find find something that you can start from the beginning with that you can learn vocabulary, learn how to talk about things that you're interested in. That's that's a really big one. I think a lot of people, and it, I would say it's also a challenge because in certain trends and in certain language pedagogy circles today, there's a lot of sort of, right, the language needs to be practical. People need to learn, um, you know, again, how to use the language on the street. And I think that's, of course, important, but they also need to, right, learn how to connect with it on a very personal level and in a way that is valuable to them. Um, but, it, and also, yeah, I wanted to also, um, echo the sentiments about publishing and there is, of course, like sort of these, you know, the skeptics who say, yeah, there's, there's no money in publishing books in Yiddish or there are no, you know, resources, but yes, I mean, that's the other thing too. The main thing is really getting students, um, or get, get, providing students with the access to certain materials that, that are, I mean, really out in the open. Um, that's a really, really big one. Um, there are books widely available online for free. Um, new books are coming out in Yiddish, and they're selling out. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a matter of access. I think that's really the thing. So, um, yeah, I could go on and on. But yeah, the first step is probably um, navigating the alphabet, finding what you're interested in, why you're coming to this language. Um, and what what realistically you can you can spend time with doing. Well, those are my questions. So, um, would any of you like to add anything? I would say that there's a tension in all cultures about progressive and conservative thinking, and I don't mean this in the political sense, but I mean in a cultural sense. Some kinds of change are good. Innovations in healthcare, things that give us a better chance to lead a longer, healthier, happier life. And some kinds of change are bad. Uh, the kinds that could shorten our life or blunt its meaning. And some kinds of change we can live with. And with regard to languages, you know, I think it is first of all important that we give ourselves permission to change over time. Like at some point in time, you know, people living in England quit painting their faces blue and worshiping at Stonehenge, <laughs> but, but they're still distinctively English. And so just because a culture is changing doesn't mean that we've abandoned our ancestors and don't have value to our future generations. And that's sometimes hard when working in a threatened language or cultural environment because we place so much respect and weight on the ancestors and worry that it, everything's being lost. We are right where we should be having been through all the crap that we have been through. And at the same time, as we take an honest look at what we have been bequeathed by our ancestors, it's good to look around and think about what can we not afford to lose mm -hmm. as we go forward. And 
I have found like for myself, I work at a university. I have nine children. I lead a busy life and I make sure that I take the time. Like our family's harvested maple syrup and sugar every year. We hunt, we fish, we gather. And it's not because, you know, knowing how to make food from a maple tree is the most important or marketable skill that is going to guarantee their financial thriving, you know, seven generations from now. But I do believe that, and I see this happen with my kids, that when they know how to do this, they have self-confidence. And that impacts everything they do in their lives. And mm -hmm. they feel recognizable to their ancestors and unique and special in doing that. And frankly, like we even have these cultural customs that are maybe a little beyond the scope of the podcast, but when our kids are born, we don't just send the placenta off for, you know, manufacturing burn grafts or whatever mm -hmm. they do with placentas nowadays. Mm -hmm. We take it home and we go out into the woods and on the, for us on the north side of a tree, we bury it there with tobacco. And we, in our family, we use a maple tree. Some families do this with pine trees. But there are my kids every spring going out into this forest and their placentas are buried around mm -hmm. all these trees. Mm -hmm. And then they put tobacco there and they tap the trees and they pull life out of those trees. You know, and it's been really heartening for me to see that, you know, my great-grandmother is a wonderful speaker of Ojibwe. My grandmother, who's still alive in her 90s, went to residential boarding school and was punished for whatever she knew of the language. And it broke down the intergenerational transmission of the language. I went after my language as a second language learner. And I'm a fluent speaker now, and I've been teaching it to my kids. So when we open up the sugar bush, then my kids will tell the legend about the sugar bush. They will do the opening pipe ceremony in Ojibwe. Mm -hmm. And then to me, it's like we've bridged this gap between our past generations that spoke the language and our future generations that will. And we do it around this kind of cultural activity and it feels so good mm -hmm. and so beautiful and so I'm so full of hope when these things happen. It has been healing for those like my grandmother still alive, my mother still alive. For me, you know, to see that we've been able to connect this bridge between those who knew us who didn't and the future that well. And it's very empowering for everybody, for groups of people, you know, the Jewish people, for Native American people who've experienced a, a genocide and have to contend with, you know, not only everything that was taken and lost, but the historical trauma that is carried epigenetically and impacts our daily living today, that these are tools. Like learning a language is a powerful healing and decolonizing act. And these are things that strengthen individuals, families, and communities. These languages are not just pretty birds singing in the forest that everyone should be curious to hear. It's about the fundamental fabric that, that sustains us and identifies us as who we are. Mm -hmm.
Thank you, beautifully said. Um, Meyer, do you have anything to add? Um, no. Um, I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay. Marcy? No, I just, um, when Anton was talking, I was thinking about all the placentas in my backyard here in the city. <laughs> and how, what a struggle it is to convince the hospital to down mm. in the city that no I really need this uh -huh. um, <laughs> um, yeah I think there are lots of ways to pass on what we know and the more that we can know of the language the um, the more intact the passing on of those traditions and teachings are mm -hmm. well thank you um all three of you. I think it's been um, a really good discussion and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, be on the podcast. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah.